Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible or flick on your device or read on the screen, we're going to go ahead and read through Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said his farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and then a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the, the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were there waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of, the unle- of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked to them, intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room which, in which we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, And the next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, "'You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia.' serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all blood, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my, necess- my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul And they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. If you're a leader, you lead the way. Not just uh, on the easy ones, you take the tough ones too. A good leader has to understand the people that are under him, understand their, their needs, their their desires or how they think a little bit. He was a real soldier. Like some of some of the officers, uh, I don't think I'd follow them in the water. But uh, he was he was one of the best. He went right in there. And he didn't. Uh, he never thought of not being first or sending somebody in his place. I don't know how he survived. But he did. Fix bayonets. Wait for the signal.
That was a, um, a scene from my all-time favourite miniseries, Band of Brothers, which chronicles the, the easy company of the 101st Airborne Division uh, as they fought through the Western Front of World War II. And leading the charge there was a bloke named Major Richard Winters. He was promoted up to Major throughout the war. He was, or is, something of uh, a bit of a war hero for his exemplary leadership. And that is what we're talking about today, leadership by example. Uh, as you know, as most of you know at least, we're in the Book of Acts. We've been here now for 48 weeks. Can you believe it? 48 weeks we've been walking through this. And here now in chapter 20, we have what is essentially the last scene in Paul's third and final missionary journey. It's been eight to nine years since Paul first set foot in Acts 13 on these missionary journeys. Uh, but here now in Acts 20, he's starting to wrap everything up. But before he departs, he rallies his troops, so to speak, the next generation of church leaders, to give an inspirational farewell speech. And this speech, it's really the heart of Acts chapter 20. Obviously, there was a lot there that John read out. Thanks for dealing with those uh, tricky names too, John. But this, this speech is really the heart of the entire chapter, from verse 17 right through to the end. It's a speech all about apostolic succession. Now, by apostolic succession, I don't mean that Paul is handing over his apostleship. Uh, there are no apostles today within the church. It was a one-time deal. Uh, the, the church was founded upon the apostles' teaching in the first century. By apostolic succession, what I mean is the teaching of the apostles. Paul's ministry is coming to an end here, so he passes the baton on to the next generation. Now, if I was to try and summarise the ministry of Paul that we've seen now over these missionary journeys in a sentence, I'll try and do it like this. Paul's ministry has been one characterised by tireless service, upholding the truth of God's word through tears of compassion. That would be my sentence summary. It's also going to be our outline for the day if you're taking notes as well. You can see that, that I uh, have cut up the verses a little bit because this speech is quite repetitive in its themes. So we've tried to break it down into the themes more than in the chronology here. So first of all, what we're going to look at today is tireless service. This is the work ethic of Paul's ministry that we've been exploring over the last couple of months. Second, we're going to look at upholding the truth of God's word. This would be the doctrinal integrity of Paul's ministry. And then thirdly, through tears of compassion. So this is the emotional, relational, spiritual heart of Paul's ministry. So we're just going to look at these in turn. And first of all, we're going to check out Tyler's service. If you have your Bibles there, please open them up. We're going to be walking through, um, kicking off here at verse 17 in Acts chapter 20. Here we read, Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Uh, last week, Tony shared with us that Paul had been in Ephesus. And when he was there in Ephesus, there was a bit of a riot that broke out. It wasn't safe for him to be there uh, anymore. But even before that riot broke out, we read back in Acts 19.21 that it was Paul's desire to move on from Ephesus because he wanted to get on to Jerusalem and then eventually he wanted to move on to Rome. So Paul's leaving of Ephesus was something that he wanted to do. It wasn't just in reaction to the crazy, chaotic riot that Tony talked to us about last week. And we saw then that he left 
Ephesus, and then you come into Acts 20, verse 1, and we read that he went through or journeyed through the regions of Macedonia and Greece, encouraging believers, before starting the long journey back to Jerusalem. Now, by verse 17 here, what we have is essentially uh, Paul on that journey. He's gone through Macedonia, he's gone through Greece, and now he arrives here at Miletus on this long journey back home to Jerusalem. It's about... 30 or about 50 kilometers as a crow flies between Miletus and Ephesus, although a couple of days walk because it wasn't just a straight line. Now, because Paul again was in this rush to get back to Jerusalem to make it for the um, Pentecost feast, uh, we read that in verse 16, he decided not to move into Ephesus. Instead, he waited at Miletus, this small port city in Asia Minor, and asked for the elders of Ephesus to come to him so that he could speak with them before he moved on. So it's here now in Miletus that Paul gives his uh, climactic, moving, inspirational, challenging, encouraging farewell speech. You see, you could actually probably cut up the book of Acts by the very speeches there are. We're doing it more by geography based on Acts 1.8. It talks about the movement of the gospel by geography. But you could segment the book of Acts by the various speeches, you know, Peter, Stephen, and Paul. But of all the speeches in the book of Acts... This is the only one that we have that is directed towards uh, Christians, those within the church. And not just Christians in general, but specifically those who are elders, who are in positions of local church leadership. In fact, you might say this is perhaps the clearest position description we have of eldership in the entire Bible, given that almost every other word here, every other verb, um, is directed towards these Ephesian elders. But of course, all scripture is profitable for teaching, um, and not all of us here are elders. So there is stuff in here for us to be learning collectively as a whole. I mean, when you think about it, you can't really separate the leaders of a church from those they lead. So what we have here, and what I want to challenge all of us to do as we, we think about this, is to consider this speech as something of a spiritual barometer test for our local church. So keep that in your mind as we go through. This is something that's directed to elders, but applies generally to all of us. With that said, though, let's begin with an obvious question. What or who is an elder? Who is Paul talking to here in verse 17? Leadership is one of the most misunderstood subjects of our time, Uh, whether that's leadership in the church, leadership at home, leadership in business, leadership in the military. But here in the church context, I think Paul is refreshingly clear in Acts chapter 20, given the different words he uses to address these particular elders. The first word that we have here is, quite obviously, the word elder. This is verse 17. These are the people that Paul is talking to, the men that he's talking to. Now, in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the word elder is presbytros. And throughout the New Testament, it basically has a twofold meaning. In the generic sense, it refers to older individual or old man in some cases. We see that through various passages. But in other contexts, it refers to a title or a community official like those within a Jewish synagogue context. The second word that we have here in this speech is found in verse 28, and it's the word overseer. Some English translations might have the word bishop there as well, um, instead of overseer, but these, at least biblically speaking, mean the same thing, although obviously in the church today they don't necessarily mean the same thing. Now this word overseer, it comes from the Greek word episkopos, which in ancient Greek society was 
more of a military term. It was context-dependent, but here it's a military term, a word for being on guard, like at a watch post, looking out, superintending, if you will. The third word that we have up here um, in Acts chapter 20 is unfortunately masked in the English Standard Version translation that was read out, but it's found in verse 28 as well. It's that word care. This is actually the Greek word poimino, which means shepherd. Now, today when we think about church leadership in a local context, uh, we often use the word pastor, at least in our evangelical churches. The word pastor is not actually a New Testament term. It's a Latin translation of this word here for shepherd. So when we put all of this together then, Paul is addressing elders, who he calls overseers, who he also calls shepherds slash pastors. In other words, a church elder is a pastor who is an overseer. Make sense? These are three names for the one position. I think it's helpful if we get in the habit of seeing these words interchangeably because there is a tendency to think of elder as something quite different to pastor today. Um, Something quite different, as in uh, an elder is somebody on a board of executives just making administrative decisions, but they aren't actually involved in shepherding, in pastoring. But as we see here, they're indistinguishable from one another. Biblical eldership is pastoring, is shepherding, is overseeing. If you want a cross-reference for that, where the same three terms are used, 1 Peter 5 is quite specific. I tend to think of it like this. Elder refers to the person. Uh, This is their character, their calling, their competencies. Titus and Timothy have a lot to say about the qualifications for eldership, right? I tend to look at overseer as the place of that person in leading and having spiritual oversight over the the church. It's a governance role in all of the church affairs. And when it comes to shepherd, pastor, you could say this refers to the process of the person in the place that they're in as they go about their role. Again, we tend to think of the word pastor today as a title. It's not in the biblical sense of the term. It's, it's a function. It's a process. It's what elders do. They pastor, pastoring, shepherding. It's the way they go about the position and the place that they have. It's a metaphor. It's a beautiful metaphor for describing the kind of relationship that the, the local church leaders have with their people, the flock. So that's it, church leadership. I guess the only other one that you might throw up here, just if you want to round out a nice New Testament theology of church leadership, would be the word deacon, diakonos. just means servant or assistant. A lot of confusion would be avoided if the word was just translated assistant throughout the New Testament. These are basically defined, these people are basically defined by their relationship to elders as people of character and competencies, just like elders, Um, who look after more of the practical needs of the church uh, so that the elders can be freed up to do what they're primarily called to do in the teaching and preaching of the word of God. So churches don't necessarily need deacons. This is more of an as-needed kind of role. But churches absolutely do need elders. They need structure. They need oversight and governance. But there it is, church leadership made simple. No reverends, no ordination, no clerics, No priests, no pope, no archbishops. Where did all of that stuff come from? That's a great question. 
Somebody come back to me after and we can talk about that. All right, so we've defined our terms here. Um, let's get back into our text with this, these kind of key terms defined. Now let's come back and let's walk through what Paul says here. Let's look at verse 18. And when they, these elders again, came to him, he said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Now look down at verse 33 through 35. Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I find it fascinating that Paul begins this triumphant hoorah speech to his boys at the end of his three-year ministry by saying, not remember what I said, but you know how I lived. More important than the words we say is the life we live. The Christian life should reflect the way that grace has employed what we know to affect change in how we live. Because more is always caught than is taught. Right? Actions speak louder than words, we say. And perhaps nowhere is that more evident than in the case of leadership. Hebrews 13:7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. I think that's perhaps the most succinct definition of leadership I've ever heard. You may have a title, a pastor, a principal, a PhD. But if you're not influencing people, you're not leading them. So church leaders, who's influencing your people? Parents, who has the greatest influence in the lives of your children? School? Friends? YouTube? Youth group leaders? You may be the parent, but that doesn't guarantee that you're leading your children. Every leader, every trainer of people, every disciple maker should be able to say, watch me, watch me, wait for the red smoke, and then follow me out into the field, and they will go. Exemplary leadership, leadership by example, going over the top of the trench first, right? Actually, in an interview about that operation at Crossroads with uh, Major Richard Winters, he's passed away now. He was asked in that interview, what was going through your head as you ran? Because I obviously cut the scene so that you didn't see what happened next. But he, he, he ran up onto a dike and was exposed to an entire battalion of German infantrymen. And then over the ridge came another whole battalion. <laughs> so he was there first. Uh, and his men came up behind him. And, and the interviewer was like, what was going through your head at that time? And he said, he has never run as fast in his life before or since that moment. And he said, the strange thing was, everything else, everyone else, seemed to be moving very slowly. The men behind me, the Germans in front. In fact, in the, in the book that records this, because that was based on a true story, and you see it in the, in the depiction there by Hanks and Spielberg, there's a German who was just kind of getting up off the ground, tired, and he just looks up, this young kid, and he just smiles like he doesn't know what to do, and then he's gone. 
What was going through your head? He said he, he, he was just on another level in every sense and everything slowed down. And there's something in that. Like the human brain is wired to store memories during highly emotional or stressful situations. I don't know if you've recognised this in your own life. Think about if you're old enough to, where were you when news broke of September 11? You probably remember that clearly. Or think about a car accident if you've had one. What is it about a car accident that it all feels like it's in slow motion? The shattering glass, the sounds of crunching, the squealing tires. We remember the little details in moments of stress. Why? One of the reasons is because all of your senses are engaged. By the way, hot tip, this is why it's really helpful if you uh, like to learn to take notes with a pen and paper because there's more of your body involved. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> so there's more of you involved if that's the way you learn, right? The more of your senses that are involved, the more you retain information. So here is Paul saying, remember, you know how I was fully involved with you all, fully invested as I was with you. We get an example of Paul's full investment earlier on in this chapter, chapter 20, when Paul, not, not with Ephesus, not with the Ephesians, but when he was actually at Troas. Look back at verse 7. We read here, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Notice the we, by the way. Luke is clearly traveling with Paul at this point. So Luke, the physician, is with him. He's accompanying him. This is the first person accounting. When we gathered together to break bread, we read, he prolonged, he, Paul, prolonged his speech until midnight. Then verses 8 to 10, we, we get this story about this young man named Eutychus, who ironically his name means good luck. <laughs> he falls asleep. Now, who can blame poor Eutychus? Like, my goodness, if I had you here till midnight, would you be awake? But Eutychus doesn't just fall asleep, he falls out of a third-story window and he dies. And remember, Luke's a physician, he's writing this, he's recording it, the guy's dead. Now, I've had people fall asleep on me before in sermons. In fact, I have preached my heart out to a room full of six sweet, sleeping old men. I've had people yell at me and let's just say non-affirming ways mid-sermon, uh, that can be quite distracting. But I've never had anyone die on me. Yeah, I did. But look at this, verse 10. Paul comes downstairs, so time out, guys. Something's just happened up the back left. <laughs> Sorry. Um, let's go downstairs and let's figure this out. And Paul embraces him, verse 10. There's life in him. It's a resurrection. Now, that could be our, our talk, but we've got to move on. That's an incredible story. There's a resurrection. They lift him back up. They go back up the three flights of stairs and get this. They pick up verse 11 where they left off. Not only that, they continue until daybreak. Now, maybe you found it hard to fall asleep after something like that happened. I don't know. But they press on till daybreak. Now, remember the incredible thing about all of this. Paul knew that he was going to depart the next day. We read that before Eutychus falls out. And yet he still preaches all day, all night, right through to the morning. But that's not all, verse 13. Others went on the boat to travel, where they could have rested, and Paul, for some reason, decides to walk the 32 kilometres from Troas to Assos. That would be hard enough if you had rested. It'd be harder still if you had stayed up all night, and it'd be harder still if you'd stayed up all night because you were working. Ministry is tireless service. 
Okay? Paul's ministry was marked by exhaustion. To be a leader is often thankless, uncomfortable, vigorous, laborious, hard work that comes at an incredible amount of personal sacrifice to you. Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about rest and Sabbath, without which you wouldn't be an effective leader. Okay, So I don't want to diminish that, but right here we're talking about tireless service. Verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Literally, that says slaving to the Lord with all lowliness. Verse 31, for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. I remember back in 2019, a mate asked me to have a video chat with him. And I didn't know this guy that well. I was about to go study with him overseas. And he said, hey, let's just catch up beforehand and get to know each other a little bit. And he wanted to uh, WhatsApp call me on the video. And I thought, ah, why is he doing this? <laughs> I don't need to see your face. Um, but then COVID hit, actually, when we're overseas. And now everyone's FaceTiming and Zooming and Teams in and WhatsApp videoing. And it's kind of weird if somebody calls me and they're not looking at me on their devices now, right? But Zoom or Teams or FaceTime or take your favorite app and fill in the blank, they're still disembodied modes of communication. And you can hide a lot of yourself when you're not fully present with somebody, fully invested with someone. In fact, when I was in the UK, I heard another talk by a philosopher of mind at Oxford University, a professor. 10% of all communication is verbal. Now, strip away the layers with a text message and look at how much is not being communicated. So don't assume too much from a text. There's a whole talk as well about how social media is affecting us today in our relationships as we hide and we control and we curate and we slap on a filter and we share and assume that likes are going to come for our projections to the world. That's another talk, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here today, though. He was with these Ephesians. He was embedded in the community with them. Paul says, I lived among you. He was all in. You want to get some theological terms here? This is incarnational ministry. It's embodied walking, talking, sleeping, playing, laughing, eating, joking, crying, ministry, all in, not just for a couple of hours on a Sunday, right throughout the week. The Christian life is one that is embodied in local community. The very word church, ecclesia, means assembly. Church is not a building, it's a people. One in spirit, one in faith, you come together to serve the Lord and to serve, to bless and be blessed. So let me ask you, all of you, are you all in at CCN? To be more specific, how are you with hospitality? One example of going all in. It's biblical. <laughs> Inviting people into your home. Exposing them to your life, not a curated, filtered projection of yourself that you want to control, just the real you, the crying kids, whatever it is. If you don't know even how to start with something like this, my advice is check out our small groups. This is probably the primary way that we can plug in and be real with people here at church. So let's pivot now from Paul's work ethic to his doctrinal integrity, from tireless service to upholding the truth of God's word. You yourselves know how I lived among you, now verse 20, how I did not shrink 
from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So here Paul shifts from his commitment to these elders to his cause among them in upholding the truth of God's word. In essence, this is what local churches are to do, to, they are to uphold the truth of God's word. Why? Because the truth matters. That's why. I mean, if you want to know who I am, you, you can't just make something up and run with it. Well, you can in the sense that you're free to. Like, if you, if you, you're free to come up and say to me, David, I like to think of you as a French pastry chef living in central Melbourne. That's, that's, that's who you are to me. You're free to do that if you'd like. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with being a French pastry chef living in central Melbourne. The problem with it, though, is that it's just not true. And so if you come up to me expecting to, to find some macarons in central Melbourne, well, first of all, you don't know me very well because they wouldn't be there still. I would have consumed them. But secondly, you're not going to find me there because I'm not a French pastry chef living in central Melbourne. Now, if that's true about me, how much more important is it about, or true is it about you? And how much more, again, is it true about God? Reality is the thing that you run into when you're wrong, and that may disappoint you, but it's probably going to hurt you. And that can be devastating for people. The truth matters. The truth matters. The church, we read in 1 Timothy 3, is to be a pillar and buttress of truth, which is why church leaders must be rock solid, not only in their work ethic, but now in their doctrinal integrity, as Paul is saying to these Ephesians. Otherwise, the house is going to fall down. But how do you be a rock solid pillar of biblical doctrine? Paul says here, verse 20, I did not shrink, hesitate, from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Why would you hesitate in declaring something to someone? Perhaps because you're worried you might offend them. Paul was aware of that, no doubt. But he did not let his fear of men dictate the truth of God's word, whether in public or in private. House to house here, see? Verse 21, Paul testified to both Jews and Greeks repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, there's a lot of confusion about faith today, but we're much happier to talk about faith. In fact, not only talk about it, we sing about it. George Michael, got to have faith. Faith, 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 faith. We have the songs. But last time I checked, he didn't have a song or a best chart topper. Got to have repentance. Got to get me some regrets. Got to have some remorse. We don't sing about that today, do we? Why? Because if you were to sing like that, you would be confessing with your mouth that you get some things wrong, and nobody likes to be told or think that they're wrong. That can be offensive, especially when somebody else says it to you. But that's, by the way, one of the things that the truth of God's word does, offends you. That's not all it does, to be clear. We're going to see later on. It builds us up. It can be very encouraging, very uplifting, inspiring, but it also can be offensive. Is this not what Tony taught us last week? 
Why was there a riot in Ephesus? Because the gospel messed with the pagan trade of idol-making. And so it caused chaos and confusion. Then we come into Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Paul moves on. Macedonia, Greece. By the time we get to verse 3, what happens? A plot's made against him by the Jews. So he walks out of one riot right into another. <laughs> Why? Because the truth of God's word offends. That's why. I know churches here in this city of Newcastle who have spoken and taught, and publicly so on, online, normative views of males and females, and they caused a riot in a local paper because the truth of God's word offends. There are so many examples of this today, I almost don't even need to illustrate the point. Let me try and make some light-hearted uh, illustration here because it can be heavy. I saw this great uh, reel on YouTube early this week. You might have seen it. Um, there's this family wanting to get a photo taken at a lookout and they say to this guy who's walking past, hey, could you come take the photo? And he's like, yeah, sure, no worries. Steps back, say cheese. And this lady, one of the family members goes, oh, <laughs> I'm a vegan, so uh, don't, can we say something else, please? Um, and Zay goes, all right, uh, say tofu. And then this other bloke steps out and goes, you do know that like, tofu is not as healthy as everyone says it is. Any CrossFit trainer is going to tell you that. And then it just gets out of control, on and on and on and on and on. And eventually he goes, right, fine, think of a word in your head, say it to yourself in silence, and smile. And then this guy steps out and goes, okay, well, that's not very inclusive, is it? What do you want us to do, take a step apart? You know, thank you very much, Stalin. And eventually he just drops the camera and walks away. <laughs> it's satire, but it's good satire because it's getting us something very serious and very sad about our culture that everything offends us today. How much more then in our time, in our age, with something that is claimed to be absolute like the truth of God's word? It's going to offend people, guys. The mark of Christian maturity, though, is not if you sometimes offend people, that's going to happen. It's how you go about sharing the truth of God's word and then how you respond when the offense comes. That's the measure of Christian maturity, okay? I mean, look at verse 32 as an example of this. Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So on the one hand, we shouldn't shrink back, you know, drink the cultural Kool-Aid and not ever speak about our faith lest we offend anyone. But on the other, let's not scream forward and be obnoxious bullies, Bible-bashing people with our beliefs because the goal here, the reason why we uphold the truth of God's word, is to build people up, not tear them down. Okay? There's an old saying, there's two ways to have the biggest house on the block. Smash every other house down so yours stands tall, or put in the hard work and build your own house. The church is not in the demolition business. Sometimes you might need to demolish a contaminated building to make way for something new, but the goal is always, the end goal is always to build up. It's a construction thing. If the church stops being a place that upholds the truth of God's word, where it stops lifting people up to their feet, where it stops helping the weak, we will no longer have a mission in this world and we will no longer be heard. Because truth is rarely heard until grace is first experienced. Truth is rarely heard until grace is first experienced. This is the way Jesus ministered. Just go through, study the way he talked to people. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. 
She was out there in the middle of the day when you don't normally get water because she was socially ostracized. She was shamed. Jesus was gentle. He was gracious. He was kind, but he was uncompromising. And yet she was heard. She was honored. She was convicted. And she ran off. This is the the part that just moves you to tears. Unashamed. This girl went from being a social outcast to being in the center of her town as an evangelist for Jesus from one conversation. That's what an encounter with the truth that builds you up does. Turns your shame into a signpost for your savior. Someone once said (laughs) that the gospel is Jesus having meals with all of the wrong people. And I love that. I fear a pretty church. Because a pretty church is a place where broken people think that they can't come. These people are in my family. We're all broken. We all need help. We all need to repent and have faith. We need to sing both the songs. Again and again and again, our words have got to give way to actions. And Paul's point here is that our words must be true, otherwise the building up won't happen. And this building, by the way, it's not a quantity thing. It's a quality thing. Be careful if you ever measure the success of a ministry by how many people come along. Cancer grows very well, and then it kills you. We don't need to be a big church here at CCN. We need to be big Christians. And as it relates to leadership within the local church, God in his wisdom has seen fit to appoint shepherds to oversee that building process. Look here, Ephesians 4. God gave shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the goal of why we uphold the truth, to become more like Jesus. So that's it. Christ-likeness, that's the goal. And it's local church shepherds that oversee the building process. As you know, we've recently just finished a mini-series, The Shepherd Psalms, here at Calvary Chapel. I don't know about you, it was humbling to preach that. Because we don't often like to think of ourselves as sheep, do we? But at the same time, I found it enormously encouraging because it means not only is the Lord with us, but he's for us. It's a humbling thing because the fact that we are sheep goes to to show that we are born followers. Often sheep have no clue which way to go. We must be led to fresh water, to new pastures, relief from the summer heat. And that is the role of a church elder, to lead the flock. And that involves vision, it involves mission, it involves direction, it involves motivation, it involves evaluation, it involves management, it involves planning, it involves problem solving, on and on and on and on and on the list goes. That's why the New Testament speaks to criteria for eldership. Things like an elder must be one who manages their household well. If they can't look after their home, how can they be a steward of God's house? Another thing we saw from Psalm 23 is that not only do shepherds lead, they also feed the flock. Because sheep can't always fend for themselves. God in his wisdom has delegated shepherds at a local level to teach, to feed, to lead churches with the truth of God's word. 
Now, why has he done it this way? Like, why isn't it enough that the Lord is our shepherd? That's all I need. That's all I want. Thank you. Amen. Hallelujah. Go home. Why is he delegated under shepherds under him? Well, this is the church age in which we live. We aren't under the law. We aren't under prophets. God himself has made himself known through his son. And the record of him is now in the scripture. This is the way it was established in the early church. Our world is a cacophony of competing truth claims out there. We're all, this is what we looked at in the shepherd Psalms. We're all being led and fed to some place by something. That's not a question. The question is only if that is a place that is upholding the truth of God's word or not. That's why the Lord has delegated local shepherds to facilitate the building up of the body of Christ. Because remember, Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is heavy. It's a humbling thing to be led by a local shepherd, a local elder. But it should be an encouraging thing, an uplifting thing, a joyful thing, because they should be shepherding you in the word of God, which is able to build you up to be more like Jesus. You see, that's why it's joyful, because that's the end goal here. So just as a footnote, when it comes to the question of the authority within the local church, and even within a Christian home, unlike the business, unlike military, I don't think the authority is located in the person. I don't think the authority is even located in the place of that person. I think the authority in the church context and in the Christian home context is located in the process of how that authority is administered, how it is worked through, the process of teaching, of shepherding, of upholding the truth of God's word and the extent to which that is done. And the reason why I'm strong on that is because I think an elder loses their authority the moment they break from the word of God. No one owns Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. We all belong to Jesus. Look at verse 28. Shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who owns the church? If you want to go to verse for why Jesus is God, here is one of many. Elders are to shepherd the church of God, which he attained with his own blood. Whose blood purchased the church? Who died? Jesus. How did Paul refer to Jesus in this text? As God. Jesus is the head of the church, and the reason why his voice matters is because he is God, and it is his word that is being held up. That's why I read here verse 27. Paul was committed to preaching and to teaching the whole counsel of God. That's all of the scriptures. Paul was all in for all of God's word. Throughout the New Testament, extraordinary emphasis is placed on the centrality of the teaching and the preaching of God's word. Jesus said to Peter, feed, teach my sheep. Paul said to Timothy, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Elders must be able to teach. They must be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that they may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And that, by the way, is the main dividing line between elders and deacons when you look at Titus and Timothy. Elders, overseers, shepherds are to feed the flock. Here at Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, we are committed to what we call expository teaching, exposing the word of God. You know, going working through books of the Bible uh, at a time 
We do have the odd occasional theme as, as you know, Easter or Christmas permits or something like that, something going on in the world, but our bread and butter is expository teaching. The reason we do that is because of verses like this. Elders, shepherds are to lead the flock. They are to feed the flock in all of God's word, not just our good ideas, the things that we are comfortable with and the things that we aren't comfortable with. Elders, shepherds, Lead, feed, and we see here now, protect. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Look at what Paul says here. Pay careful attention. And then he says next, be alert. First to yourselves. I said before that leadership is influence. Whether you realise it or not, the most influential person in your life is you. No one speaks to you more than you do. No one listens to you more than you do. You're constantly talking to yourself. You're constantly preaching some sort of gospel to yourself. The only question is whether or not it is one that upholds the truth of God's word or not. What was the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden? That they may be like God. How did that temptation get seeded in their heads? By a question, did God actually say So often the tactic of the devil is to cast doubt on the truth of God's word because that's what equips you and I for the work of the ministry. That's what equips you and I when we face opposition and when we face temptation. That's why it's mentioned twice as the qualifications for eldership have been outlined, the tactics and the deceit and the conniving nature of the devil. He tried it in Genesis chapter 3 and it worked with Adam. It didn't build him up. We call it the fall. And it's worked with countless throughout human history. The devil loves to get you away from the Word of God. Read C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters and you get an idea into the mind of the demonic. It's a fiction story, but it's quite interesting. Genesis 3, the tactic of the devil worked against the first Adam. Matthew chapter 4, the tactic of the devil did not work against the second Adam. Three times Satan came at Jesus in the desert. And three times Jesus comes back. It is written, it is written, it is written. Away from me. The word of God is the only offensive in the Ephesians 6 arsenal. It's too late to train when you're in the desert getting tempted. It's too late to train when you're leading people and you're up in the dike and you're now taking enemy fire. Right, press the word of God into your soul. Colossians 3.16, may the word of God dwell in you richly because if it dwells in you richly, then it's going to spring up when you need it. When you're going through the, the still waters and the green pastures, that is the time to drink deep from the word of God because you might not have the capacity when you're going through it, the valley. But don't be a Eutychus and fall asleep on the truth. You might hit the pavement. Truth invites questions and it withstands scrutiny. Ask your questions if you've got them. And let me tell you, no one, no one celebrates the presence and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ more than the person who has embraced their desperate and daily need of it. Pay careful attention to yourselves, says Paul, next to all of the flock. Because verse 29, from outside will come fierce wolves. Here we go. You got there, guys. 
from outside will come fierce wolves. And from the inside, people who speak twisted things. Let me ask you, what do you do with a wolf that wanders into the church of God? You shoot it right here, right between the eyes. Let's not make any excuses for it. That's what happens. Why? Well, we don't have wolves here in Australia. We've got wannabe wolves. They're called foxes. But any farmer that sees a fox eyeballing his lambs, if he doesn't take it out, he is a bad shepherd. I mean that seriously. Like if you look up abdication of responsibility in a dictionary, a shepherd watching his sheep getting eaten alive by predators would be a pretty apt illustration. Elders are to take care of business. That's what I mean. They are to be knowledgeable, ready, able, willing to guard and protect the local church from false teachers with the truth of God's word. Again, there is military language here. It's defensive, it's courageous, it's on guard, it's sounding the alarm, it's discipline, it's discernment, it's admonition, it's seeking after those who are straying and plain and bringing them back. Look out for yourselves, look out for wolves, and also look out for golems. Scripture twisters. Remember Schmeagel? He was a nice guy until he got his hands on that ring. Then he got bad skin, bad teeth, bad hair, bad day. He became consumed by power and he decayed him from the inside out. That's what comes to mind when I read about these people in verse 30. They're people with misplaced power, misplaced authority, leading people astray. Watch out for them, says Paul. Wolves and golems. Now, how do you discern these kinds of people in church? Simple. Ask yourself, are they building up the body of Christ to the full measure and stature of Jesus? Or are they causing disagreement? I don't want to say disagreement. Are they causing division and derision and dissension and undermining of the leadership and the upholding of the truth of God's word? Disagreement can be a good thing. If Jesus is not a person's hero, turn their volume to zero. The success of a ministry is always more a picture of who God is rather than a statement about who the people are that God is using for his purposes. And I think that's why Paul is so earnest here in verse 26 when he says therefore like this is desperate therefore i testify to you this day that i am innocent of all of the blood for i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of god so serious is this task that he is now handing over to these ephesian elders that he makes a point of disclaiming what he's he's saying and doing here his entire ministry he's saying my conscience is clear i've done all that i can sometimes in life Things are going to happen that are outside of your control. But at the end of the day, elder or local member of a church, we aren't responsible for changing people. All we can do is be faithful to the giftings and callings that God has put in our lives. There is a point in church leadership, a point in any leadership, a point in discipleship, a point in parenting. As a mum and a dad, when we just have to say, I've done everything I can and I commend you to the grace of God. That's a legitimate place to come. We can only do so much. At some point, people need to take responsibility for their own actions. But as elders, as parents, as friends, discipling, lifting others up, the hope and the prayer is that we have stacked enough kindling around their souls so that God in his time, by the power of his spirit, will light a spark and ignite their hearts for him and his glory. Tyler's service upholding the truth of God's word finally, briefly... Look at the emotional, relational, spiritual cost of it all as Paul ministered through tears of compassion. Verse 19, 
I served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. If you were to ask the average Christian what he or she most wants from their spiritual leaders, I think the answer in most cases would be to be loved and cared for. Nothing ministers to people's needs more than genuine Christian love. And as we've seen today, this love never comes at the expense of going all in. It comes precisely through it. The word compassion literally means to suffer together. It is through tireless service, through upholding the truth of God's word and all the slings and arrows that will come your way for that, that we love each other. Leadership requires devotion and directness, but all the care, all the hard work, all the watchful, skillful self-sacrifice is ultimately or should ultimately be born out of a deep, intimate love for God and his people. I mean, look at the way these Ephesian elders responded to Paul when he wrapped things up. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They weren't offended by what Paul said. They loved him. They embraced him. They kissed him. He had been their leader. They still wanted to follow him, but the baton had been passed. Apostolic succession had taken place. Now it was their time to stand up and leave the trenches. So, look, at the end of a passage like this, you might sit back and, you, and ask the very salient question, why on earth would you ever want to go into local church leadership? It's a good question. Everyone can be a leader like everyone can be a parent. doesn't mean they should be. Church leadership, eldership, is a calling. 1 Timothy 3, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires, desires a noble task. 1 Peter 5, elders are not coerced or compelled. They are people who stand up willingly, eagerly, not domineering, but as examples to the flock. Why would you ever want to be a local church elder? That's just it. They want to be. It's a calling. They can't see themselves doing anything else. Do they have questions? Of course, we all do. But it is a calling upon their heart that elevates them to stand up. It begins here with a desire. And that desire, when met with recognized capabilities and character, watch how the Lord will empower you with his grace. That's the link between verse 24 and 32. The same grace that called Paul is the same grace that sustained him. It's not only a saving grace. It's a sanctifying grace that empowers elders, empowers all of us in our tireless service, upholding the truth of God's word through tears of compassion. And as Tony said last week, that's not a cheap grace. It's a costly grace. This is how Acts 20 applies to all of us, by the way. When we as a church are marked by our service, by our ambassadorship of God's truth as ministers of compassion, we will be people who look and smell and sound to this world like our saviour, Jesus. Because he wasn't just a tireless servant. He was God who gave up his rights as God, humbled himself as a slave 
in obedience to the point of death. He didn't just uphold the truth of God's word. He is the truth of God, the word become flesh. And he didn't merely shed tears of love and compassion. He embodied God's love and compassion and died for sins that were not his own. He lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died so that now you can live with him. In every aspect of Jesus' ministry, he exemplifies the pinnacle of service, truth, and compassion. So be imitators of me as I am of Christ, says Paul, because that is how we show Jesus to this world. Tireless service upholding the truth of God's word through tears of compassion. It's not about perfection. It's about grace-enabled faithfulness to the perfect one. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, following in the footsteps of our Saviour. He didn't wear robes of a ruler, but an apron like a servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for its conviction. We thank you for its challenge. We thank you for its comfort. Father, we thank you for its consolation and the hope thereof that one day things will be made new. Father, we thank you for Paul, though not perfect. Nevertheless, he showed us all what it's like to toil in the flesh for things of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for our elders here at CCN, men who are called to carry this mantle of apostolic succession in our day and in our place. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them the wisdom of Solomon, the courage of a David, the endurance of a Paul, but above all else, the heart of Jesus, that they may faithfully walk this road that you have called them to. Father, as a local church, we commit ourselves to you afresh today. Spirit, we ask that you would build your kingdom here to the measure of the stature of the fullness of you, the Son, that our lives might be a testament to your grace and your truth. And it is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we bring this before you now and we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.